Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today I'm really excited to be joined by my friend, Teddy Wayne. Teddy is the author of the novels, The Great Man Theory, which will be out July 12th, Apartment, Loner, The Love Song of Johnny Valentine, and Capitol. He's the winner of a Writer's Award and NEA Creative Writing Fellowship, as well as a finalist for the Young Lions Fiction Award, the Penn Bingham Prize, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. He's a former columnist for the New York Times and McSweeney's and a frequent contributor to The New Yorker. Welcome to the show, Teddy. Thank you. This is my, I think, third appearance. Is that right? I think it's your third appearance. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Um, I just finished your, your, your new novel, The Great Man Theory. It's not out again until July, but you dropped it off um, at my house, I think, on Saturday. And by Monday afternoon, I had finished it. Um, that's how much I liked it. Before I ask you my questions, my big questions about the book, why don't you just tell us a bit about, um, what's the book about? What's the, what's the story? Yeah, we should first explain. It's only three pages long. That's why you read it in two days. Right? It's, a, it's, a short book. it's true, but I have, a new, I have a newborn baby, so even three pages. Yeah. It's more than three pages long. Yeah, the Agreement Theory is about Paul, a 46-year-old, recently demoted adjunct lecturer and nonfiction essayist who lives in Brooklyn, divorced dad, has an 11-year-old daughter. He's writing a, a manuscript called the, the Luddite Manifesto. He is profoundly anti-technological technology. And it's set during the unnamed Trump era. Uh, Trump is never named as president, but it's clearly in the recent uh, political era we just moved through and are still kind of stuck in. And uh, without giving away too much of the plot, it, it follows Paul as his life spirals further out of control and he develops a fixation on an unnamed right-wing uh, new cable news network and a, a, a host uh, of a primetime talk show named Colin Mackey and hatches a plan to, in his mind, save America from itself. Okay, that's great. I don't know if you remember, I, I once told you that I, for when, I, when I read fiction, I'm looking for both beauty and for the author to tell me something about the world. And I feel like when I read your work, that's, that's what I get. And um, I also feel like, you know, you are in some ways one of, you're, you're like a great comedian. You, you really are great at observing the world around you. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask you was, and you can tell me if I'm getting this wrong. For me, so much of the book was about the, the disappearance of childhood. And, um, but maybe I'm getting that wrong. Maybe it's just about the, the, the ways that adulthood has changed. And I'm wondering, in either case, when you think that change happened and, and what do you think is responsible for it? I, I think you nailed a, an interesting sub-theme of, of it. Uh, the disappearance of childhood is regarding his daughter, Mabel, who's turning 12 in the book. So just at the age at which kids start pulling away from their parents, which he does over the course of the novel, and and latching onto their peer group as their as a bigger source of identity. Um, so he's concerned about her her engagement really with, I think, the internet and and phones and devices um, more than anything else she's doing in the physical world, in part because he sees adolescence as as mutating into an online existence away from the physical space. Um, there's a moment where he's watching his daughter have a, have a birthday sleepover with a bunch of girls and they're watching TV at night. And because the internet's out in his apartment, they're watching network TV. So it, it throws him back to a banal memory of his own boyhood, uh, having a sleepover with some friends. 
and he's thinking, or maybe the implications that maybe things are still kind of the same. And, uh, you know, childhood now is the same as childhood back then. And then his reverie is interrupted by one of the girls taking a selfie of them all. And he immediately thinks that uh, the, the illusion is punctured and he believes that there's an innocence lost um, in America, at least, uh, that this, this idol of childhood, I-D-Y-L-L, that is, um, is no longer possible, that we, the kids have grown up too fast, but then consequently, they stopped growing up at a certain point, and now we're a nation mm-hmm. of, of juveniles and a nation of 13-year-olds who are still watching superhero movies and acting like middle schoolers on the internet. And, and uh, you know, the president at the time, seemingly the, the, the eighth grade bully who became somehow class president. And so there's it's it's a nation that has moved past uh, the childhood has ended. And maybe I guess you'd say perpetual teenage dumb is, is where we are now. Right. So what's your theory or what's the best theory you've heard for why you think that's happened? Uh, the, the Internet. I think there's no, uh, I, I can't imagine there's anything else. I mean, there's cultural shifts that, are, that, are, that occur all the time that you could point to. And, you know, I think, yes, the increasing, probably the increasing amount of violence and sex and coarseness on TV and in the movies and, and music does have something to do with it. I, as much as I hate to say it, I think Tipper Gore was on to something <laughs> in the 90s. But that pales next to giving everyone, including nine-year-olds, um, supercomputers in, in their in their pockets and being able to access whatever they want at any time, including things they shouldn't be accessing, and being able to communicate all the time, but in a very shallow form. And I I think the internet plus phones plus social media. Um, look, how many how many sixty five year olds do you know? Do we both know who, when they get a Facebook account, suddenly seem like twelve year olds? You know, they they act in ways that are far beneath them. And I think the only thing you contribute that to is the device and technology and medium that they're using, not any other major changes in how the world functions. So this actually brings us to the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, in an interview, the historian Timothy Snyder um, remarked that it's, it's pretty clear that the internet's been on the whole a disaster for humanity. What do you think about that? I, I would agree. I mean, there obviously there are counter arguments. Um, both it, it's you know efficiency for commerce, I guess, is probably what it does best. Um, although that's also destroyed a lot of other forms of commerce that are maybe better to have in, in society. Um, yes, it does connect people who otherwise can't connect to people if they're either uh, if their voices are muted or if they're physically isolated or for whatever, whatever reason that they can't, um, you know, actually engage with people in, in the real world, this is a, a way they can do so. Otherwise, I think it's had profoundly uh, disastrous effects on us, not just societally, but psychologically. Pull up any number of studies about the effects it has on the teenage mind. Uh, I certainly can tell that I read less than I used to, read, read fewer books, mm-hmm. have a, a less, um, a worse attention span because of that too. Some of it's just aging and, and distractions with life, but I, you know, will I'll be in the middle of a book and look at my phone for, for no reason and then suddenly be on my phone for 20 minutes. And 20 years ago, that wasn't possible. So I, 
not that my ability to read a book is the be all and end all of civilization, but I think if you extrapolate this to mm-hmm. everything else we're doing, uh, it does have serious effects and, and consequences. And if I could uh, somehow change history, I'd rather the internet not be created. I think we'd be better off. This is to say nothing for the political extremism mm-hmm. invited. And I, I don't think um, the rise of this right-wing authoritarianism, there are other factors, economic factors, certainly contributing to it that are probably more important, but I don't think it would have, have take root in America at least without social media. Tell us a little about the title of the book. Where does it come from? It is a, an 1840 theory by the Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle, who proposed that the history of the world is the history of, quote, great men, uh, probably almost exclusively men in his time, uh, that certain individuals, by dint of their courage and intellect and charisma and other virtues, are the ones who make history as opposed to the masses below them. This is an idea that uh, obviously was received in his time, but has been criticized uh, subsequently, I think, because it, it feels anti-democratic. It makes it seem like only the kings and you know, the, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and the Einsteins are the ones who matter and not the, the, not the, the collective. I would say, though, if you look at what's happened in the past, especially six years in the world and in America, it's hard for me to, to deny the, the, the strength of this theory that uh, Donald Trump has single-handedly taken a, a political party and a, almost half of America with him on this insane ride. And yes, they had the rest of them had something to do with it too, but it, is, it really is one guy doing this. Um, same with Putin in Russia and any other number of strong men around the world. One individual, and they might not have had a replacement if they didn't exist. I'm not sure a Trump would have existed or another Putin would have come into power. They, there maybe are certain things about these individuals that have enabled them to do this. Uh, and you see this with the Trump imitators. They're just all such pale imitations of him. Uh, Ron DeSantis being much smarter than Trump, despite that, just doesn't have the same pull over people that Trump does. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think there's something about this great man idea. Paul, um, who becomes interested in this theory, I think at the root of it is, at the root of his anger is that he knows he's not one of these great men. Um, he knows that he's neither a great writer nor, nor quote, great man. And he does not have this kind of influence on society. And he, of course, a nonfiction writer is not going to expect to have the same influence as a, as a president. But we're in a world, an age now of, of writers and other individuals branding themselves and becoming um, known as, as individuals stepping outside of institutions. And he would love to be one of those writers who's considered a tastemaker. And he's simply not. He just doesn't have it. You know, your book is filled with characters who are, in one way or another, trying to improve the world. And I was trying to figure out as I was reading your book where what sort of what your theory of change was. I couldn't tell at the end if you were criticizing Paul and the great man theory and instead holding up this, you know, his one of his ex-friends actually who was, you know, at the protest, at the resistance protest as sort of the model for how change should happen. So I'm, yeah, I'm curious about what you think, what your theory of change is, but I guess you, you sort of answered it, that you, you support the great man theory of change. Oh, I, well, to, to, an extent, to an extent, yeah. I don't, I don't support it as a good thing. I support the validity of it, that it seems mm-hmm. to actually be 
taking hold. Right. No, I think with his his ex friend has the right idea. Do what you can do locally, even though that the ex friend is somewhat hypocritical. He's a, he's a rich, mm-hmm. um, by mostly by family money liberal who who talks a good game and does a little bit, but you know not not a whole lot. He still lives in like a, a huge townhouse and is very happily using his money to make his life better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certainly though, incremental change, uh, if that's all that you can do is the way to do it and, and doing what you can locally, if you can affect things on a national level. What I guess I was criticizing is Paul's, um, while Paul is critical of the great men out there, the, the, the great toxic men that's, that is, he himself desires to join their ranks essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and I think the, the novel charts his, his corruption into wanting to become one of these great men and doing whatever he can to become it and letting that cloud his vision of actual change of, of improving the world. He, to some extent wants glory for himself more than he wants to topple the president. Yeah. You know, besides, I mean, there's so many, so many interesting themes in the book. Um, one of the other big themes, I think, is everybody seems to be, all of the characters seem to be somewhat sick and also addicted to one thing or another. And I'm wondering what it is, and a lot of your book is about contemporary capitalism, and I'm wondering what it is about, I don't know, capitalism or America that we live in today that creates sort of pervasive addiction. Well, you would you know more about this topic than I do, but I start thinking about anti-growth or degrowth as uh, not the the theme of this book because it, there's nothing mentioned about it, but as as I guess the shadow theme of it, which is capitalism is dependent on growth and on, on increasing growth every year and relentless profits and profits that exceed last year's profits, and forget the economic theory of that as, as, aside, which I, I don't know much about. Psychologically, I think that is an affliction that um, has entered the minds of people under capitalism. The feeling of always wanting more and needing to do better and better and be better than you were before and have more than you had before. And a, a, a lack of satiety if you don't get that. And I think this is the real, uh, I guess, defect uh, of living in, in a capitalist society, which is that you're never fully satisfied because there's always something else you could be wanting and getting. And even if you get it, then there's another thing you'll, you'll be wanting and getting. Yeah. And so uh, Paul, I think, is, despite living a, a modest life and being anti-materialistic and so on, there is one area he wants this in, which is respect and acclaim for his, for his intellect and his writing. And I think this is where a lot of people who seemingly shun um, capitalistic imperatives uh, and, and believe themselves to be above the fray still have some form of, of capitalist desire and ambition, which is in a non-materialistic vein. You know, it struck me reading your book that it, it felt like a, in some ways, a deeply nostalgic book. And at one point you said, and I forgive me, the book is, is at school, but you, you, you say that we sort of crossed a Rubicon at some point. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. in your mind, when you think that was, when, when we crossed that, at sort of what point did we go off the tracks? Yeah. Am I well, right I, to say that it's a it's a nostalgic book? I mean, in some ways it feels like you're you're not MAGA, of course, but you're yearning for <laughs> a different America. Yeah, 
Well, for I think the nostalgia line is talking, I think he's talking about his daughter and saying he they've crossed a Rubicon and, and yeah. there's no going back with her. Okay. But you're right that there's a, a generally pervasive feeling of nostalgia. Uh, if the MAGA guys want 1950s, I don't want that. I think, um, <laughs> I mean, so I, I've got uh, a two-year-old and four-year-old. And one thing that happens when you have young kids is, I think, pretty common. You revisit your own childhood and you think about your own childhood as compared to theirs. And I think it's very clear, especially because they've both been alive for either almost the entirety of their lives or even the majority now of their lives during the pandemic, uh, that historically speaking, their childhoods are, are, are worse than, than mine was, um, just as, as, as a time, as an era, that no one would choose to be born in 2020 if they could look back on it as opposed to <laughs> 1979 or so. So I, not that my era of my childhood was perfect, but I do think things were better then, and I, I attribute a lot of it to the internet, as I said. Um, I think in America, 2001, 2008 had big impacts to uh, 9-11 and the financial crisis. I think 9-11 uh, radicalized the right wing and militarized the society in a way that we hadn't been since the Cold War. And 2008 scared everyone about their economic situation and made them cling to um, eventually a, a strong man who promised them that he'd make America great again. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 played out over the course of a disastrous 20-plus an ongoing year war that showed us to be weak and vulnerable, which, again, I think also inspired that right wing to want a, a strong man to promise a return to American uh, military potency. So if I, I, I do think probably the 90s were the last good decade uh, you and I have discussed this. I know you have other qualms with the decade, but comparatively, I, I don't see how anyone could ever think that the 2000s, 2010s, and certainly not the 2020s um, are America's golden years. I think we had a, a really good run from about 1950 to 2000, um, at least, again, compared to other eras in, in American history. And uh, I think that's, that's closed off now. The other day, you and I were joking about sort of what the world's worst op-ed columnist would would look like, and yeah. um, you know, it's sort of like the answers were all very ambiguous. And you know, I don't know, I don't really have anything to say about you know Ukraine. But one of the things that I like so much about not just this book, but your work in general, is that the answers feel so ambiguous. And and you know, you Paul is an adjunct professor in the book, and at times I think that you're really critical of young people, of college students in particular. Um, but in the end, I'm not sure that that's the point you want to make. So, um, you know, are the kids all right? Yes and no. Um, I, I think one, one thing that gives me hope about the future is people under 30, especially, have really stepped up politically in the last decade, um, really the last five or six years and become a force in a way that our generation didn't uh, as a whole. Uh, it, it was pretty uncommon in when we were college students and even right after, even uh, with, as the start of uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was a muted response, I'd say, by our generation. Few protests here and there, nothing so major. And I think Occupy Wall Street was the start of something bigger. But then Black Lives Matter and general resistance to Trump in the past six or so years 
has really surprised me and, and given me some optimism about the future. So in that sense, I think they're very all right. Um, even uh, looking at gun control, I think a lot of the response to gun control has been youth advocates um, paving the way for us. I think, I think what they're most hurt by is, first of all, the financial situation that they've entered, an economy that's really teetering, and they understandably are nervous, and, and it's a, a time of precarity, and that's not their fault at all. But I think what's, what's hurt them a lot, and I'm not sure they fully, I'm not sure all of them fully comprehend this, is their immersion in digital, a digital life has, I think, uh, stripped them of a lot of authenticity, uh, or that is of living an authentic life, and uh, reduced their emotional connections to each other. Uh, it's certainly possible to have a deep connection to another person if you're 25, I'm not saying that's not, that's not uh, viable. But I think uh, communicating via text uh, and, and sending 50 texts over the course of the night is a weak uh, substitute for even just a long phone call, which is what we used to have, um, let alone seeing someone in person. Again, part of it's not their fault. There's been a pandemic, so that's accelerated these things. But I think it's a much worse time to be 25 years old now than it used to be at, a, at pretty much any point in American life, except for uh, being of draftable age in Vietnam or in World War II and, and before that. So, Teddy, you and I are both big fans of Tyler Cowen, and we're going to play a game of overrated, underrated. You know the rules, but basically I'll ask you about something. It's going to somehow connect back to your, your work, and uh, this in particular, all these questions are this book. And then you can choose to answer overrated, underrated, explain your answer, or you can say pass. You ready? Overrated. Oh, wait, sorry. I started already started. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, first, Ben Cortland Park, overrated or underrated? Oh, kind of underrated, right? It, it, uh, the little, I haven't been much lately, but it's huge. There's a lot going on and no one talks about it uh, compared to Central Park or Prospect Park. South Slope. Uh, hmm, I lived there briefly, probably... It, I, it wasn't my favorite place, but again, I think underrated in that it's adjacent to Prospect Park. Um, it, it's still relatively accessible to Manhattan. It's much cheaper. And so you can live a, uh, there's some jokes at, at, at its expense in the novel. I think uh, Paul thinks of it as the motto should be South Slope when life throws you a curve because he, he ends <laughs> yeah. up there after his divorce. <laughs> But it, it's probably underrated in that it's still close to the action, but much cheaper. Fatherhood. Underrated because it's, uh, it is wonderful, I think. Very difficult. But uh, I think there's not much even said about fatherhood in the culture. I think motherhood gets its due uh, in terms of the rewards of it. I think mothers don't get their due in terms of how much work they do. But fatherhood is... Uh, there's so little about it and it's usually done in a sort of cheesy way, like a, a father daughter dance or songs about, you know, a, a father to his daughter or to his son, but there's um, a depth to it that I think is, is remarkable. And I, if, if one reason maybe it's underrated, I think a lot of dads just are not around as much, even still, I think most dads of our generation are much more present nonetheless than our our parents' generation, but a lot of dads still work till six or seven at night, see their kid for an hour before sleep, and that's it. And um, obviously through no fault of their own. 
And so underrated because it's the time you do get is, is precious.